Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Our featured guest today is Lisa Sinnott. Lisa Sinnott is a writer and teacher and a member of the American Federation of Teachers. She lives in Windsor, Ontario with her family, but her hometown is Detroit, Michigan. She works on her writing with author Ariel Gore and the Literary Kitchen. Sections of her book, Detroit Fairy Tales, have been published in or recognized by various magazines and journals. Elisa says that she is an immigrant to the middle class and is dismayed to discover shortly after her arrival that it was being dismantled. And Detroit Fairy Tales is her first book. Welcome to the show, Elisa. Thank you so much for having me. Have you always been a storyteller? Yeah, I come from a long line of storytellers. Um, my dad grew up in Canada. Um, before like electricity and stuff like in a deep rural area and he said they were always standing around like memorizing poetry and so when we were small he would read these memorized poems to us um songs and things so i think do things like that try and um write advertising to sell my little sister I tried to describe her in glowing terms so someone would purchase her things like that <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> and it did it work um yeah my neighbors took her in for a while but they gave her back at bedtime so (laughs) i love hearing about people with siblings (laughs) (laughs) so your book includes some poetry and prose poetry do you write in other genres or is fiction your main outlet I think fiction is my main thing but like a lot of people who love literature and writing and also have full-time jobs it's like all experimental you know you do a little bit of this and that and I think sometimes um prose poetry most comes out when there's like a strong emotion and um fiction comes out it's like more developed it's it's a process of many many edits but I think prose poetry is often like first blush at a really strong event for me anyways that's what it is yeah How does your writing with Ariel Gore and the Literary Kitchen work? Well, so um, Ariel Gore was a founder of this magazine in the United States called Hip Mama. And it was, she started it when she herself was a teen mom and that she didn't see any representation for um, people that are not like on the total beaten track. And so that magazine was very encompassing, non-shaming, welcoming to like the female experience whether or not it fit like a a really straight version or I don't know that's the wrong word but like an societally acceptable version of life and when I discovered um Ariel Gore's writing I was single parenting I was divorced um seemed like things were a struggle and people were pretty judgmental about you know how it is just to how do you get your kids prescription if they're sick and it's winter and you live alone with them and they're too young to leave home like just all these things that not everybody has to consider and her writing was so powerful when she started writing 
um, um, offering online classes, I joined up. She was based in like the West Coast, but that was the moment I had like at nighttime, just a little bit of stolen time there. So that's how I started and her really welcoming like, yeah, of course you're a writer, just write whatever, you know, start anywhere, write what's on your mind, write according to this prompt. And that's where all the stories pretty much almost came from. It's that kind of uh, non-judgmental group of writers that was online even way before pandemic. And um, so it felt safer to be able to, to get going over there, so. Do you work best when you're collaborating with other people like this? Is that is that something that's really energizing for you? I think it just keeps me going. Like it's more almost like a social aspect of it. Hey, what are you working on? You know, type of thing. Um, but yeah, I think definitely it's motivating when other people are like believing in what you're doing and you're reading what they're reading and writing. And um, yeah, so I run a writer's group on Thursday night, but it's total collaboration. Now there's a different host every week and we have different topics every week. You know, it's it's more just motivational because writers are often just on their own with their thoughts, so. We associate fairy tales with magic realism or plain magic. Uh, your work deals with some pretty real and challenging life events for a young woman, actually a group of young women. And so how do you associate fairy tales with this form of uh, storytelling? Well, it's a hard question to answer and I'll maybe answer it sideways. The cover, um, I grew up in wait, this house right here. And a lot of these stories about Detroit are, the pictures are in grayscale. Um, what is it called? Uh, decay porn was like invented in Detroit and things like that. And so I wanted to tell stories that, you know, that, that showed people being strong, resilient, having happy endings, no matter what they're going through instead of saying, oh, look at this sad, sad, decaying city, you know? So yeah, I think the situations are tough. And at the same time, uh, the people are having actually happy endings because they're not giving themselves away or getting defeated and ruined by them. They're just part of their lives. So I think that was an organizing principle for me. And yes, there is magical realism in there, but also I wasn't going to tell you a sad story. So a lot of it is structure as well. It comes into your, your, the scaffolding of your work then, does it? I think so. I'm thinking more like the impetus for it is like to deliberately not ending the stories on sad notes they the the endings are fantastical in some of them depending on what actually happened um some things are exaggerated you know it's drawing from reality but it's fiction and i think um, that kind of goes back to what i was saying about well for me prose poem is the first flush of emotion um the one i wrote in the book was driving to el salvador with hector and domingo was because i had never left the country before besides canada in Detroit and that was it and so that emotional outpouring happened because I saw life from a completely different standpoint 
not sure what point I was trying to make, but yeah. <laughs> Resilience is such a classic 313 trait though. And I just, I love that you've built that into your book, even when there is magic realism and, and magic um, involved, that it still comes through that these are very much Detroit fairy tales in that way. Yeah, thanks for emphasizing that. And I think more recently people are also talking about resilience as being something forced upon people in difficult situations and then the people looking at the resilient people get to feel um like uh, sorry for them or energized by them and i think the characters in my book are not they are resilient but they're not resilient for your display they're just being themselves awesome so the structure of the book has short chapters with various years stated. Is that mm -hmm. another way of connecting fairy tales to your writing, the format of short tales? I think so. And it's also a reality of a high school teacher to only have that much energy. But when I went back and started looking at it, um, when the book won a, um, a semi or a finalist in a fiction prize, I was like, oh, well, let me look at what I actually do have here because that rejection is actually really good news. And so I started organizing it into um, time periods and it was um, chronological at first, but then I was like, no, no, the family of origin has to be fourth. I don't know where that came from, but um, it can't be told in order. And so I didn't. So I think there, there might be some superstructure that somebody else will notice from it but for me the short tales came out of just my daily life for single parenting then being in a partnership and also full-time working but then when i went back and looked at it the structure i placed on it i guess like fairy tales there is an origin story so yeah mythology it'll be interesting for me to go back and look at it after i've had a little bit more distance from it these are great questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you touched on the timeline a little bit, that it goes back and forth in time and that you're, you're being a little bit playful with that time structure. Was it important to make it fluid for some creative reason? And how did that help you sort of build the picture of your characters? I think when I, I did a lot of reading of writers' first books, which often come out like after their fifth book is published, and it's always like sort of this rough short story collection. A lot of people's first books seem to be short stories or novellas or books of essays. And looking back on those, like I can read a, a, an author's later finished book and then go back and read their short stories and see where some of that was coming from. And I know when I read those short stories, I'm like, I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to know more. So then I, I think with that knowledge, I structured it so it would almost read like a whole book, um, even though their short stories are all thematically connected and within um, the characters and within time frames. So hopefully it's the birthplace of a longer novel down the line. Um, but yeah, I think I got the short stories a lot from reading other people's first books. And like some fairy tales, your book actually includes some whimsical artwork. Would you like to tell us how you came to include that in your book? Oh, yeah. So um, 
my best friend from um, second grade in Detroit. Her name is Debran Dominguez. She is an artist. She's now based in Santa Fe. Um, but she read the book and then she did a painting for me based on the book. And um, then she sent it to the publisher and he selected elements for the painting for the cover. And she's also from that same neighborhood. So uh, we were right in sync with that. Brilliant segue, because the next question is this. Various neighborhoods of Detroit, Ann Arbor, and even Belle Isle appear in your book as though they were characters themselves. Is this a love letter to Detroit, a modern history, or a warning about certain neighborhoods? Ooh. <laughs> um, I think it's definitely a love letter. Although people will say, uh, that's a really rough, critical story for it being a love letter. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, based on what some people say and think about Detroit, I think the difference is it's populated with people that could be anybody, including the reader. Like, oh, this could be me. So is it a warning about different neighborhoods? Maybe about the suburbs who always kind of seem kind of strange and impersonal and about being strange and impersonal ourselves and not like down to earth and really connecting with each other. But yeah, I did notice that Detroit is one of the characters. I think you're definitely right about that. <laughs> Excellent. So you also talk about society and class in your work and even in your biography. What interested you in depicting that so vividly in your book? I would say that would be the emotional experience of growing up where I did because um, my dad came from deep rural Canada. Well, it's not that deep anymore. Everything's close, but rural Canada where he, um, well, his father died when he was super young. So there was a lot of economic insecurity there. They had to live by themselves in an apartment while um, my grandma went to work in Detroit. And that's how the family ended up there. But they lived, my dad was like 15 and his little sister was 12 and they were living in an apartment by themselves in, in in Godrich with uh, one older sister. And that's how they like finished high school. And my mom lived in um, rural Michigan, like in a really just, oof, you know, and, and their house was like a, a literal chicken shack after their dad was gone. And so um, they brought us to this wealthy middle-class black neighborhood to be raised so that we, it would rub off on us. Um, but we didn't have the manners of the middle class, nor blacks, nor whites that were in that neighborhood. And um, we didn't know that you should pick your neighbor's garbage in broad daylight for furniture, uh, maybe playing folk music on the front porch, um, selling items to the neighbors, like bread, taking in their ironing. Like we were, and then also we performed on stage as a family band. So we really stood out in that neighborhood as not being quite knowing the rules, <laughs> which for kids is not as easy. I mean, you look back with it, it's nostalgia, but you know, I think a lot of kids feel like outsiders, but um, we took that to a new level, I think, <laughs> with some of our behavior. So what is your latest writing project? What are you working on now? So right now I just am publishing just small pieces on my blog. The latest piece is magical realism. It involves Anthony Fauci turning into a dog. I don't know, it's just like experimental stuff like that. 
And then the other thing I'm working on is my dad wrote a um, series of columns for the Godrich Signal Star. And so um, they were previously co collected in a, a self-published book, but I'm getting like more stuff from the family uh, recordings of him singing some of the old songs. And I'm like going to re-release that. And then I have um, DetroitStories.org where I am going to be doing um, a community writing project, but I have not gotten really into that one yet. And I'm looking forward to having some downtown to just like have time instead of teaching every morning to go back to writing every morning and, and maybe get deeper into fiction also. So I guess those are two projects I mentioned are sort of like uh, head, not heart projects. Like they're heartfelt, but they're not me. So I'm hoping to get some time in the summer to just really dive into some new characters. We'd love to hear some of your work. Would you like to read for our, our listeners? Sure. Um, the one thing I want to mention, I have a deep and abiding love for Stephen King because he tells a great story. It's, you know, he, he keeps your interest. And uh, the last book I read of his, 112263, it's all about time travel. And like, if, if you are a fan of Stephen King, but are afraid of him and you read that book, it just like pulls you in. So I want to read stories that will pull people in. And I think that's going to take a lot of practice. Um, sure, I'll just grab the first story of the book. It's called White People Steps. We unironically called these steps the White People Steps, just all the white people call them. They weren't the White People Steps, but this is what we, this is like segregation 1980s. Like this is real, um, what we thought. So this is called Lisa 1980. This morning I woke up in the white world, Detroit, Michigan, Savo Mile, West Side, 1980. We live on parallel streets going from east to west, starting at the Detroit River, ratcheting up towards Eight Mile and the suburbs in One Mile Steps. Like bicycle spokes, larger avenues start downtown and the hub and stretch far, far away to better places like Chicago, where people have briefcases and ride the train. Placement along the gridline plots a person's destinies and we Detroiters are supposed to stay put. At school, on the white people steps, we say people are black, white, Mexican. I know there are some mixed race kids, but I don't know what they do. One of them was a homecoming queen this year. She was beautiful in her satin gown from Hudson's. I saw her picture in Sunday's Detroit Free Press. For us, nobody else exists. At our school, black and white don't mix very much unless they are in school activities together and take turns being the most popular kids at the school. Our school, Cast Tech, is famous for its music program. My sister is in the singing group, The Magicals, just like Diana Ross used to be. They get dressed up on performance day, but my sister doesn't own a skirt and only has one bra, so she can't get into uniform for the musical performances. She has to pretend that she forgot her show bag at home, and Miss Terry always lends her a school dress without a word. You have to know that people never use the word hillbilly or white trash on us but we knew not to try to get too close to the black kids. We wanted to save ourselves the embarrassment of the brush off, the rejection. The Southwest side is more my style. People are all over these rules about who is cool and who is not because our parents are in the union and strike together at the factory. Sometimes we have the car and we drive people home all over the Southwest side, but most of the time we are on foot or on the bus Finding a guy is impossible at school because I'm not allowed 
to date black kids, even if they look at me in my hand-me-down clothes and washed out pale skin. I have to skip and go over to the southwest side where all the cute white and Mexican boys are. So it's time to move away from La Dor and Escipiar La School because we need to find boyfriends. Elisa, I turn and see Lainey. She's already got a cigarette lit for me. Tony's looking at you again. I look over at Tony Racovitas. He's cute. Too bad, I think. His hands are too sweaty. I tell her. Lainey laughs. He didn't seem to mind after practice yesterday. I laugh. Maybe. The rest of the crowd on the white people's steps disperses when the first bell rings. Pretty soon, Bonnie and Clyde, the security guards, will be out here chasing us all inside, and it'll be too late to make a break over to the southwest. Let's get out of here. Lainey and I pool our resources after we are well away from the school and Bonnie and Clyde's stack of detention pads. We have enough change for the bus or for two top hat hamburgers each. Neither one of us has eaten breakfast, so we start walking past downtown, past the Michigan Central train station, under the viaduct and onto West Vernon Highway. The Amtrak trains clink overhead. We work, we work on our school spirit for the pep rally, singing and shouting. From east to west, Cast Tech is the best. As we walk through the cement arch tunnel, jogging past the cave-like slit where people sneak over to Canada through the train tunnel under the river. Now we're officially on the southwest side, just two blocks from the Ambassador Bridge to Canada, but still two miles from Laney's house. My feet hurt and I'm hot and thirsty. Brown leaves rustle around our sneakers and it's feeling cold and damp. We hear the car before we see it, a rusty brown 72 Dodge Duster with a white stripe pulls over to the curb and stops. Laney and I look at each other. Joaquin, we run over to climb in. Joaquin Davis wears a tight white t-shirt and his muscular golden brown arch drapes casually over the back of the passenger seat. Joaquin is Mexican, but he speaks hardly any Spanish after the teachers tried to beat it out of him. Now he and his parents can barely understand each other. Lainey jumps in first, so I squeeze in next to her. Lucky, I mutter. Joaquin is yummy. She laughs and shifts towards him. What the hell? You walked all the way home from school? Yeah, we're starving, Lainey says. I'll take you to Ace Convenience then. Lainey tucks herself under his outstretched arms. Thanks, Joaquin. He doesn't object as we pile up our snacks for him to pay, but we pick out the cheapest off-brand Cheetos and Great Pop, so he won't think we're trying to use him. Joaquin drives us deeper into the neighborhood toward Laney's house, rattling over the tracks. I'm glad we aren't walking. As we pass under the viaducts, I hear the Dodge's engine's echoes vibrating like a jet taking off. On the other side, the car chugs around the Verner Avenue curve as Laney lays her head on Joaquin's shoulder. I roll my eyes at Romeo and Juliet and watch the side mirror instead. Joaquin and I see the flashing red lights at the same time. Oh, shit, he says as he pulls over. I try to sit up straight and pull Laney up. Joaquin rolls down the window, then stares straight ahead, both hands gripping the wheel. I follow his lead and roll down the window and sit with my hands folded, looking straight ahead. Laney's hand grips mine, fingernails digging into my palms. I feel the presence of the blonde policeman at my side, but it's the other white officer who speaks to Joaquin. License and registration, he pauses. Don't you know all passengers are required to wear seatbelts? Joaquin groans soft enough only for us to hear. We're afraid of what's going to happen next, but it's Joaquin who gets pulled out of the car, no matter how slowly he moves or how carefully he follows instructions. 
This insurance has expired. Will you step out of the car? I start to move, but the officer on my side puts up his hand to stop me. He moves around to the other side of the car where the first officer is bending Joaquin over, patting him down, then taking him back to the squad car and shoving him in the back. The officer is back at my window. Your licenses? We hand over our student IDs. 10th grade? I nod, look down. Laney gulps and nods. How old are you? 15. It's like we're twin parrots chirping out the same answers. Has this man been supplying with you with alcohol? Did he try to rape you? Why aren't you in school? The officer asks his questions rapid fire. No, I mean, he didn't. I try to speak, but the officer cuts me off. Stay here. He goes back to the squad car with Joaquin and the other police officer. I bow my head. We're getting Joaquin into so much trouble. Long minutes pass. I have to go pee. Finally, the first officer comes up to the window. Get out of the car, he says. Laney and I tumble out and then stand shakily, our legs half asleep from sitting in the cramped front seat for so long. The officer doesn't seem interested in us at all. Instead, he turns toward the tow truck, backing up and hooking to Joaquin's bumper. Laney is frozen in place, but I'm hopping back and forth, wondering where I can find a bathroom. The officer seems surprised to see us still standing there. He steps in closer. You girls Mexican, he asks. Um, no, Laney answers. Look, girls, officer says, go back to school and don't get in cars with Mexicans. We stand there like two mute dummies by the viaduct as the squad car pulls away. Joaquin in the back seat, spine erect, staring straight ahead. Shit, Laney says, we left our Cheetos in the car. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Elisa Sinnott, for joining us today. Thank you so much for, for inviting me and all your good questions and it's great. We write by ourselves, and so it's really great to get a chance to talk about our writing with other people. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.